Well, good morning. As we return to the sixth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews and to one of the most discussed passages in all of Scripture. Uh, certainly, it's little wonder why that is. Here we find one of the sternest warnings in all of Scripture. It's a text that is difficult and challenging and, frankly, frightening. It speaks of people not being able to be brought to repentance, and that should certainly get our attention. In fact, that is the very point of the warning, to get the attention of the readers with the seriousness of what is being said here. This warning builds upon the recognition of several accepted facts that we've addressed throughout the exposition of this letter. First, that being in the midst of the people of God does not mean that you are among the true people of God. In other words, attending church does not equal being a true church member of Christ's church. Now, certainly Christ's people should attend church, but you are not Christ simply because you attend church. Our author has been working extensively on that count, and the Exodus warning that we have repeatedly looked at is Exhibit A in that indictment. Many of those who claim to be the people of God in that Exodus generation went on to show clear evidence that they were not. Now, we don't have time to go into all of that this morning. They were descendants of Abraham physically, yes, and therefore part of the covenant which God had made with Abraham concerning his physical descendants. But they were not all part of the covenant of grace promised through Abraham's seed. That is the spiritual descendants of Abraham. So the first foundational point is, among does not equal of. And there's clear evidence of that in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. For even Paul says this in Romans chapter 9, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. To be with Israel does not mean you are truly of spiritual Israel. That is clearly what Paul is saying. But our second foundational point this morning is that Jesus is fulfillment of the revelation of the Old Testament. Now, everything that you previously believed, he says, in Judaism finds fulfillment in Christ. It all points to him. Now, that is incredibly important to the author of Hebrews, who is argument to New Testament revelation and to biblical theology this is key it all points to jesus he is greater than moses he is greater than aaron he is greater than joshua it is his eternal priesthood that avails therefore if you have claimed to have understood and accepted all of those points persecution should not be able to drive you away from such a confession Jesus is Lord and God and Savior, whether or not you are in a valley. The danger has emerged, and the fact that it has seemingly driven you away from what you recently confessed is problematic. Make no mistake about that. How can you, having confessed who Christ is, walk away from him and his people? That is like those, again, in the Exodus generation who claimed to have loved God, yet bitterly resisted every command and instruction which he gave. Now, there's even more stated in this letter that we've been looking at. They've also grown dull of hearing, literally lazy and unable to hear. And as a result, they are not hearing the things that they desperately need to hear, the things that will ultimately reveal where they stand in regard to Christ for or against him. 
Now, our author clearly believes that he is speaking to brothers in the faith. We've spoken about this. He calls them brothers. He calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. Even so, they are severely stunted in their own spiritual growth, and it is beginning to be to their own harm. In the best case scenario, they are immature and disobedient believers, and that's not good. But in the worst case scenario, they are not truly believers at all. So an exhortation and warning is being delivered that they need to hear and that they need to heed. They need to learn and understand the truth of the gospel and grow in the grace of God. And such growth results in both knowledge and practice governed by the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to this chapter and to the warning against remaining in the elementary doctrines when God is providing so much more. So let's jump in today and read our text. It begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Brothers and sisters, as we discuss this most serious text this morning, I want us to look at just two points. First of all, a serious warning. And second of all, a sad reality. So I begin with the first point this morning of a serious warning, and it's not hard at all if you were listening to that text to figure out how I came up with that first point. We've been seeing this idea of building upon the truths. In fact, that's what we looked at last Sunday morning. At a foundation that is to be built upon. And they are to move forward in completeness and maturity, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. But not only is that not what is happening, unfortunately it's completely the opposite. There is a desire here for some to stop identifying with the church at all, and a corresponding temptation to return to the synagogue. And that means being identified with Moses, the Old Covenant, and all that is required therein. So this letter is being addressed to just such a people. If they truly understand that the old covenant is anticipatory of the new, finding fulfillment in it, what could they possibly return to? When Aaron is spoken of, or the Levitical priesthood, you realize that it is not an end in itself, but points to a greater priesthood. And how can you sit there in the midst of a people who are claiming as part of their worship that they are still waiting on a Messiah? When you know that Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, has come. And you aren't going back there to bear witness. No, you're running from danger. 
not looking for it. No, you're going to blend in to nod your head and to get along. And in doing that, you would be publicly agreeing with those who testify against Jesus. Those who claim that He is not God, not the Messiah, not Lord, not Master. Those that claim He is a fraud and a liar. If baptism is a public picture and testimony of participation in Christ, this is the exact opposite. You are publicly participating with those who reject him and condemn him. This is why Arthur states that such a person puts Christ to an open shame, both in this public identification with those who oppose him, but also by making a mockery of the transformation of the Spirit of God. For you once claimed to have been born again by the power of God, and now by your actions you ridicule the saving and transforming power of Almighty God. Brothers and sisters, this is serious. This is serious. And this is why author states that you were also guilty in this very way of crucifying Jesus again for yourself. You see, recently you stood with those who said that Jesus died for our sins. But now you stand with those who say he was crucified, himself a sinner. My friends, that is blasphemy. And however you may dress it up, you are no longer testifying that Christ died as a sinless Savior, but that he merely died as just another sinner. And the gulf between those testimonies is like the gulf between salvation and damnation, paradise and hell. It is no small matter. How could a true believer do such a thing? I believe our author's answer is simple he couldn't he couldn't therefore to return to the synagogue is to identify who you are and that is someone who is not a participant in christ someone who has not been born again by the holy spirit of god now brothers and sisters that is a very serious warning the christian far from abandoning faith is called to grow in it and while the old covenant laid a foundation for many of the new covenant blessings They cannot now be held in part because their fullness is found in Christ. So build upon the foundation. Don't try to lay yet another foundation. Build upon the foundation you already had, the foundation that pointed to Christ and it's fulfilled in Him. Now as we looked at this last Sunday morning in the message, we saw that there was a list of things in that foundation. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection, and judgment. Now, as we said last Sunday, that's a list that almost all Jews could have endorsed. Yet our author reminds us that all of those subjects have a fuller understanding in Christ and the new covenant sealed in his blood. So even as we hold to those same things as uh, the Jews did, we say at the same time that we don't hold to them in the same way that Jewish The Jewish faith does. They are fulfilled in Christ. We understand them greater in Christ. Those foundational truths were meant to be built upon. And you cannot stay in the partial if you understand the full. So this is why our author has labored with the Exodus example. It's the same sort of thing. Did they not testify that God was leading them out of slavery? 
that he was leading them by pillar and cloud, that he was providentially providing for their needs in the wilderness, yet in bitterness of heart, they wanted to go back to Egypt and Pharaoh in the very slavery they recently decried. Now here, in this example, there had been Jews in the synagogue who had heard the gospel and were convinced, or it seemed to be convinced, that the gospel of Christ is God's salvation for sinners. But now the trouble comes. They desire to return to Moses and the synagogue saying, we'll take the law. The law is enough. And so here is a serious warning that our author is declaring. For, gar, because it is impossible to restore to repentance those who go this route. Heed this warning. It is impossible to restore to repentance those who go this route. Now for good and obvious reasons, This warning frightens many people. But we cannot separate it from the context of the letter and the people to whom this author is writing. These are people who have claimed a number of things, claims that we've been looking at throughout the journey through this letter. They claim to be among the people of Christ. They claim to have understood these foundational teachings and that they have been fulfilled in what Christ has accomplished. Further, there is a list of qualifications to those to whom this warning is offered. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see them there. First of all, they have been enlightened. They have been enlightened. And you will see this in verse 4. They have been enlightened. Now some point to the fact that in the early church, they used this sort of language to speak of baptism. Justin Martyr, I believe, is one of the ones that you can use as evidence of this of speaking in this way, of speaking of baptism in this way, of being enlightened. And that might be what our spirit-inspired author is arguing. Many of the commentators argue that this is what it means, but even if we don't go that far, if we just take a plain reading of the text, it would tell us what? That they've claimed to come to know something. Enlightenment means that, to to have the the light of knowledge shine upon you. They have come to understand something, to know something. They're claiming this. Well, what is the thing that they've come to understand or to come to light in regards to? What have they come to know and believe? Well, the answer is simple. They have claimed to have become enlightened regarding the person and the work of Christ. That is to say, they claim to be enlightened vis-a-vis the gospel. Now, it is a distinction, by the way, with no difference at all. For what is baptism, if not the outward testimony of God's work in convincing us of the truth of the gospel and our corresponding statement of participation in that saving work by faith? You see, it's faith in the content that they are enlightened to. Baptism is just a symbol of that. They are saying, I understand who Jesus is. I understand why he came, which is to say, I understand the gospel. I put my faith in Christ, and therefore I physically demonstrate that in obedience in believer's baptism. Now, at the end of the day, they are enlightened as to Jesus. But that isn't all that's said here. Second of all, they have tasted the heavenly gift. Again, many in the early church used such terminology to speak of the Lord's Supper. Now, that would form a fitting parallel with baptism. And so many of the commentators like that interpretation, 
largely for that reason. But even if an author only means that they have claimed the experience of renewal in Christ, it is still a confession that has and carries consequences. You cannot claim you didn't know what you have already publicly professed. If you have claimed to experience the heavenly blessings of the new covenant, how can you now reject them? How can you now reject the new covenant? How can you now reject Christ as Savior? We move on to the third qualification given here. It says they are partakers in the Holy Spirit. Now here we need to be cautious because theologically this should not be interpreted to suggest that they have received the Holy Spirit as they could, as if they could lose his presence, which would in essence mean lose salvation. Instead, we should understand that the author is meaning that they have partaken of the community, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now again, author suggests that they are also saved. Thus, they also have the indwelling spirit. But if they walk away, it will demonstrate that this was never the case. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The author is assuming that they are believers. He's made this assumption throughout the letter. He is hopeful that they are in Christ, that they have the Holy Spirit, that in that way they would actually be partakers in the Holy Spirit. But if they walk away, it will prove that that is not the case. If they walk away, they will show they were in the midst of the ecclesia, the the called out people of God, but they were never really members in it, never participants in the body of Christ. And so it brings you to a question. Having seen the evident works of the power of the Spirit, preaching accompanied with signs and wonders and works of power, will you now turn away from what God has so clearly wrought? Fourth, it says they have tasted or experienced the goodness of the Word of God. Now certainly we can say that as Jews they had already experienced or or had the Old Testament revelation which is fully the Word of God. That is not disputed here. They had the Old Testament revelation. But our author is referring to that which has been gained in this New Testament revelation. I don't mean the collected New Testament. We're not talking about that here, but we're talking about things like the Apostles' Doctrine, the Apostolic Teaching, those things that would be gathered Uh, We don't know yet what letters they may have had, even at this early uh, point in church history. But whatever they had, they had received by God's grace. And so they had this joyous and wonderful revelation of God in what Christ was doing, what he had accomplished. That he fulfilled all the Old Testament scriptures in this way, that he came into the world as the Lamb of God as our priest and prophet and king. And so again, brothers and sisters, we see this amazing blessing that they had experienced the goodness of the word of God and yet now they are walking away. And fifth, our author says they had experienced the power of the age to come. That is to say that they had experienced the power of the glorious kingdom age. Now what does he mean by that? Well, they had seen the eschatological signs, had they not? The preaching that they had received had been accompanied with signs and power and works of God. They had witnessed miracles and wonders that could only be explained as God moving and working. This was like God's seal of approval on 
all that was happening, clear evidence that God was saying, this is truly my work. Now, everything that could be argued would be beneficial for them to have, they had. They had the Word of God. They had the community of God. They had miracles of God all around them. They had everything that you would pray that you would have. They had. And after all these many blessings, they're going to walk away, in effect, rejecting it all. My dear brothers and sisters, what can be said? except for this, that to have all of that and to walk away demonstrates an evil, unregenerate heart of unbelief. And that brings us to our second and final point today. Because the warning here is very, very serious. It bothers many people when they read it, and we can certainly understand why. It is stating that there is no repentance possible for people in the situation described here. If they walk away here, that is it. It's not a hypothetical warning. All scholars agree on that. It's a serious warning telling the hearers of this message to tread carefully. You are standing on dangerous ground. If you fall away now after having tasted all these gracious gifts... You cannot be brought again to repentance. Now certainly we can see why this is such a troubling text. Let me say this as we walk through this. That it's important that we keep this within the focus of the context of the letter. Now that is not to say that there is an application uh, for us in this text. But we are not the primary recipients of this letter. And we need to remember that. It is written to a people who have claimed all of these privileges. Did you hear the gospel? Yes. Did you claim to believe it? Yes. Did you associate with the church? Yes. Did you see the power of God at work around you? Yes. I saw all those things. Were you baptized? Yes. And I think we can say that as the answer because confessors were quickly baptized in the early church. You see, he might say we proclaim all of that. We have done all of that. And now we're leaving. And not not just leaving, in a very real sense of the word, switching sides. Is it not true that most of the early persecution of the church was at the hands of the Jewish leaders? So you're not simply leaving. You're moving from the persecuted to the persecutors. You are leaving the people who said, this Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised up, and are moving to rejoin the side that was saying that it was right to crucify Jesus. They call him a blasphemer. That is no small error. Again, this is why our author is saying that it is like crucifying Jesus again for yourself. The difference is that this time you cannot claim to do it in ignorance. For you yourself have testified to having fully heard the truth. You cannot claim that you did not know. You can't claim it. Now that must be taken into consideration in understanding this text. Who is not being addressed in this text? It's important for us to think about. Who is not being addressed? People who heard a part of the gospel or some teaching of Christians, 
thought it sounded kind of good without fully fully understanding it, and then walking away later. That is not who is being pictured here. Nor someone who is baptized early without fully understanding what all of this means, then walks away from the church for a while, then returns back at a later age because they now realize their desperate need of Jesus. That is not what we're seeing in this text. We're talking about a people who claim to know everything. They say, I have heard everything. I have testified as believing everything that is proclaimed in the gospel in the church. I have witnessed the power of God at work, and now I want nothing to do with any of it. These are much more like the people that you see who claim that they were formerly devout evangelical believers. You ever see these people? Sometimes on TV, maybe you see them on on a YouTube thing where they're going against Christianity. But they'll always say, oh, I was a devout believer. I was was very serious about my faith. And then I came to realize it was all nonsense. And I walked away. Brothers and sisters, I just want to say this. Those people will not be able to stand before the righteous judge and say they didn't know. They won't be able to. You professed that you did know. You're standing before people saying, I accepted all of it at one point. I believed all of it. I knew all of it, and I reject it. You will not be able to claim that you did not know. You profess that you did know. So, my friends, we need to realize that this is serious. We also want to say that we understand that any that would walk away did not personally experience the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit of God. But they were certainly in the midst of people who did. In fact, that is what it means to be an apostate, to to claim to know something, to understand it, and to have participated in it, and then to turn away rejecting that which you once claimed. Ones who were once professing Christ but have now turned against Christ. So the context requires this realization. For these individuals, it is not an act of ignorance, but of rebellion against the God of creation. For such people... For such people, this text is declaring that there is no repentance possible for them. And this really shouldn't surprise us, brothers and sisters. Because if you've ever met or seen the kind of person I just described, the person who says, oh, I was devout, I was serious, I was all in, and then I came to realize that it was all a bunch of garbage. If you ever come to meet a person like that, you will quickly realize that they are the people absolutely most hardened against the gospel. Most hardened against it. There is no reasoning. There is no discussing. Whatever avenue you would try to take to to use the word of God to show them their error, they will reject it. My friends, this text is telling you why. And I think if you combine it with Romans chapter 1 and see there that God says he gives them over to their own desires, then it will become clear what's happening. Now that is why this text should be seen as a serious warning. If you walk away, you are declaring this of yourself, this. You are visibly separating yourself from the people of God. You are declaring yourself to be an enemy of Christ. You are making that clear to all who are observing. 
and you are declaring that you're in Adam and not in Christ, and that you have always been in Adam because it is those in Adam that are at enmity with Christ. You'll be showing clearly that you were never reconciled to God through Christ, that you never had peace with God. And the reason for that is because the peace with God that Paul is referring to in Romans is a lasting peace, an unalterable state of peace. And you want to know why? That's because that peace is not based on my actions, but on the perfect work of Christ in whom I stand. You see, there is no waffling between Adam and Christ. You are in one or you are in the other. And you do not go back and forth, back and forth. All are born in Adam. The redeemed are born again and have standing in Christ. By Christ's merit we stand in him. By faith and that of the grace of God. Nothing we did could earn it or lose it. That is why it is by God's grace. It is his gift. For those who receive this letter to walk away simply shows that they never believed. Even so, the warning for them is severe. If they walk away, there is no repentance available for them. So we don't want to separate this from the context, as it often is. We want to understand it in the context of the letter. And it's important for us, brothers and sisters, because we we hear people fret over this text. They say they used to attend church as a child and they attended vacation Bible school and later they left the assembly of believers. And what is more, they made many mistakes along the way. And maybe somebody's testimony goes a little bit further. They made a profession and they were baptized and they walked away from the assembly of believers. And maybe they lived a life of sin. And years later, they come to understand their desperate need of Christ. They know it in their heart. They need Christ. And they turn to him. But they read this text and they fear that it's speaking to them. What can we say here, brothers and sisters? Well, let me answer that by saying two things in response. First, It simply can't be speaking to that situation if you are repentant over your sins. Because the promise here is not that God will reject your sincere repentance. No, the promise here is that there will not be any repentance at all. So, if you are repentant, then this cannot be speaking to you. But second of all, This is not speaking to those who had misunderstanding or limited knowledge or didn't really fully understand. No, this is speaking to a people who are blessed to see and to hear and who proclaim that they fully understood. Some scholars believe that this is really only possible in that apostolic generation. I don't know if I would go that far with it. Maybe there's a context where we can fully know and walk away. Maybe those examples we spoke of earlier of the people who said they were in church for years and and rejected it all and walked away and are just so hardened against Christ. Maybe they are modern examples. But certainly we can see the unique position of these believers in that apostolic age 
where they received the the direct teaching of the apostles oftentimes, and they saw signs and wonders that verified and testified to the veracity of the claims. That is something to see and turn away from. And so if after all of that, they reject Christ as the only means of salvation, what does it prove? It proves sadly that the Holy Spirit never regenerated their heart. Because the hearts of the people of God, with the love of God shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us, love Jesus. The hearts of the people of God love Jesus. And so this warning is offered, and it is serious. It is fraught with the deadliest danger. But brothers and sisters, if we know someone who is in this situation, they have been exposed to the truth of Christ again and again. They have heard it preached and taught and they understand it. And they've even given the profession that they believe it. And they are about to turn their back on the gospel, on Christ, on salvation, on the new covenant, on all of this. We need to point them boldly to this text. This is not a small thing you are doing. God does not consider it insignificant or slight. No. It is a grievous misstep. And one from which there may well be no return. And if that seems harsh and terrifying, then so be it. For God intended it so. Now, brother, you will say, if they are saved, they will not leave. That is true, brother. I believe that's what our author is clearly saying. If they are believers, they will not leave. But it still needs to be said. The warning still needs to be offered. We need to follow the pattern we see in Scripture that this warning is offered. Why? Because God is at work through his holy and inerrant word. And this warning may well be the means by which he grabs one of us by the collars, by the lapels, and shakes us about out of complacency to make us understand the seriousness and the consequences of the decision that is before us. You are standing at the precipice of eternity, with it hinging on what this moment reveals, the author says. So heed the warning. Hear the warning and heed it, brothers and sisters. Do not leave. Stand in faith. Stand fast in faith. And build upon the foundation God has erected. Amen.